Welcome to today's journal, Nutrition Education and Behavior Journal Club webinar. Um, my name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you are joining us uh, for this series on research methods. Um, just a reminder that JNEB is the official peer-reviewed journal of the society and JNEB serves to advance nutrition education behavior and behavior-related research practice and policy. Uh, before we begin, a little housekeeping. If you look in the GoToWebinar toolbar, uh, there's a handout tab, and so the slides for today's presentations are the presentation is there for you to download. Uh, so please do that and follow along. We'll take questions at the end of the presentation, uh, so please type those in the question block, and we will moderate uh, questions to our presenters when the webinar ends today. Uh, you'll be prompted to complete a short survey, and we appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future webinars. And obviously, we'll be planning a fall journal club and would appreciate uh, ideas for that series as well. Uh, we are recording today's presentation, so watch for an email, um, usually on Wednesdays, that includes a link to the presentation, uh, the handout, and then the CEU certificate that you're earning for your live attendance. So we have a guest moderator today. I'll turn things over to um, Dr. Hewan Gray. She's assistant professor at the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and also um, in the leadership of SNEB's research division who helped plan uh, this webinar series. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce two speakers today. Dr. Jonathan Blitzstein is a recognized expert in the evaluation of policies that address food assistance programs, community-based nutrition support, obesity prevention, and healthy decision-making in the retail food environment. He's a trained research methodologist who develops study plans, data collection tools, and conducts complex analyses based on an in-depth knowledge of social and behavior theory and a thorough understanding of applied statistic, uh, statistical principles. His research focuses on the role of social and environmental factors in access and availability of healthy foods among marginalized and vulnerable population groups. Dr. Joanne Guthrie is a senior research nutritionist in the Food Assistant Research Branch of the Food Economics Division of ERS. She previously worked with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and at several USDA agencies, including the Center for Nutrition Policy Promotion, Human Nutrition Information Service, and the Agricultural Research Service. She is a former Peace Corps volunteer nutritionist and National Health Service Corps nutritionist. She holds a Master's of Public Health degree and a doctorate degree in human nutrition. She has authors or co-authored numerous USDA publications and has published in peer-reviewed journals. I'm going to turn it over to our speakers today. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome, everyone, and uh, thank you for your time today. I'm going to turn my camera off uh, because the slides are much more interesting to look at than I am. And there we go. <clears throat> there we go. So um, and I, I want to thank you all for your time. And I also want to thank uh, a few people who helped make this study happen. First, I want to thank the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, who funded our research. Uh, the Healthy Eating Research Program and Mary Story. Uh, I would also like to thank uh, Chip Hill and John Holloway. Uh, they are the designers and the artists that created the iShop that I will be walking you through and giving you a little introduction of. I also want to thank uh, Carrie Adams, who is our third author on this paper. She could not be with us today. Uh, and I want to point out that the findings and conclusions in the presentation are those of the authors and should not be construed to represent any official USDA or U.S. government determination or policy. Okay. Um, so let me just give everyone a quick overview uh, of what I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm going to start by uh, uh, sharing the nutrition educator competencies that this uh, presentation is uh, covering. Then I'm going to talk about the motivations for the study. Um, I'm going to talk about the iShop, uh, which is a virtual environment for examining consumer behavior. 
the study hypotheses in the experimental design. I'm going to talk about the ANOVA and COVA model. And I'm going to try to do that a little more conceptually than mathematically. Um, right now, we all have access to a number of different uh, software packages and statistical packages that handle a lot of the math for us. What I'm hoping at the end of this presentation is that everyone will have a better understanding conceptually of ANOVA, what it's doing, when to use it, and when you see it in publications, what should you be looking for? And then finally, we're going to talk about the findings and the implications uh, on the paper that we published. So uh, here are the nutrition ed educator competencies. Um, 10.1, analyze and evaluate and interpret nutrition education research and apply it to practice. 8.10, assess the nutritional behavioral needs of the population. Uh, 1.7, critically evaluate the claims associated with the research study findings, food product, diet, or supplement, or eating style based on the nutrition educator's knowledge of nutrition and the approaches used to study diet health relationships. So um, I'm, I'm kind of new to this. I'll own up to that, and I hope that I do a good job of making you all more competent nutrition educators. So I'm going to jump right in now with the motivation for the study. Um, so the home environment is where most of the influential factors shaping children's eating and dietary behaviors occur. Uh, parents play a gatekeeping role by deciding what food children have access to in the homes. Uh, they also play a very critical role because the home food environment is an important source of information for children in terms of modeling behavior and establishing norms and expectations around eating. Many children grow up replicating what they see their parents eat. And so figuring out how to shape the home food environment is a critical avenue for us to increase the healthy diets and nutritional quality of the next generation. However, um, the presence of less healthy foods, oh, I'm sorry, the presence of less healthy foods in the home, uh, those that are high in sugar and fats, has been associated with poorer diet quality in young children. And distinguishing between healthier and less healthier products in the supermarket can be challenging. Uh, using the nutrition facts panel found on the back of most food products requires understanding nutrition, dietary guidance, a certain amount of numeracy skills. It also requires the time and the motivation to think about and compare information. This can be very challenging, especially for low income and SNAP shoppers who tend to be younger, have fewer years of formal education, and for some lower income shoppers who have demands on their time, like uh, required overtime or shifting schedules, taking time to make healthy choices can be difficult. Um, I think that was true when we wrote this paper a few years ago. I think that's even more true today uh, in the environment where many people who have hourly jobs are being asked to work more and more hours, uh, which cuts into the time that they have to do things like shop, uh, plan meals, uh, and prepare foods. So uh, there is a significant public health interest in providing consumers with information that can help them achieve their nutritional and dietary needs. Um, this interest is rooted in the recognition that a lack of appropriate information leads to poor dietary choices, has negative and unwanted consequences for the impact of health on some people, and front of pack nutrition information labels have been proposed as a potential solution to this problem. Uh, front of pack labels represent a growing phenomenon worldwide as a means to curb obesity and improve dietary quality. Um, many EU countries, as well as Australia and New Zealand, have mandatory or voluntary front of pack labeling uh, systems. I believe the last time I checked, it was about 17 EU countries have some standard front of pack labeling scheme. Um, these labeling schemes vary quite a bit in their presentation, but they all have the same two general qualities. First, is that they are easier to read than the nutrition facts panel. 
And second is that they are located on the front of the packet uh, in a place where it's more likely to be seen. And there are generally two types of front of pack labels. Uh, the first type is called a summary label. Um, the summary label uses a scoring algorithm that considers a number of different key nutrients and produces a single value that determines the healthiness of the product. Um, these labels tend to be graphic. These labels are often referred to as directly because they make it very easy to directly compare two different products. And you see here in the little corner an example of a summary label where between zero and three stars would be awarded for the health of the product. Now those zero to three stars are awarded based on a calculation across a number of different nutrients. And that's important to remember. The next type is nutrient-specific labels. Um, in contrast to the summary labels, these provide guidance on a nutrition, on a nutrient by nutrient basis, focusing on key nutrients such as sugar, fat, and sodium. Um, the information here is provided, as you can see, in a numeric array. In this case, it's provided along with traffic light indicators, red, yellow, grains, which provide additional guidance. Um, where green indicates that the nutrient is at or below 5% of the recommended guided amount. Yellow indicates that it's between 5 and 19%. Red would indicate above 20%. Um, but the issue here is that because this is on a nutrient-by-nutrient nutrient basis, a consumer still has to encode, synthesize this information, come up with some decision on their own, um, this also requires a little bit of numeric skill. It's not quite as complicated as a nutrition fact panel. On the other hand, um, it does provide more information than a simple summary score. There is a third type of label that is a hybrid between these two, uh, between the summary and the nutrient specific. The hybrid label produces a healthiness rating that is based on a nutrient-by-nutrient nutrient scoring system, very much like the nutrient-specific labels did, but it's presented in a very graphic format, like the summary label, zero to three stars, for example, but this is still at a nutrient level. So what you can see here is the circle with the stars would be what is shown on the front of the packet. This product got three stars because fat, trans fats, sodium, and sugars were all less than 5% of the recommended amount. And um, the consumer would, of course, have to turn the box around to get that nutrient-by-nutrient nutrient understanding. But this is a label that is recommended uh, by the Institutes of Medicine, um, and the idea is that we are providing a summary of the information on the front of the package, but still giving everyone a nutrient-by-nutrient nutrient breakdown for those who care to look further. So those are three types of front of pack labels. We'll be talking more about those in just a minute. So most of the research to date on front of pack labels has occurred in one of two formats. A lot of the research has been done in a laboratory setting and some of that is based on survey research. Um, this is a very decontextualized way of, of collecting information and running experiments. Somebody sees a survey, they may see one or more than one type of front of pack label. Uh, they will be asked about things like their preference. They will be asked whether they think they would use this in a grocery store. Um, these studies have the benefits of randomization, so you can make comparisons. There could be a control or a counterfactual group. You can also control for potential compounds like brands and pricing, but we are not collecting information in the environment where the behavior typically occurs. 
field studies, the other format for collecting data on fundamental pack nutrition labels, um, are very good because they are occurring in the field, in the supermarket. These types of studies are usually based on secondary data or market analysis data. This is directly observation uh, uh, of the particular behavior of interest when you're shopping. Um, however, there are a lot of confounds to control for. If you're simply uh, observing someone's shopping behavior, brands, price, distractions, many things can influence what a person selects. So what has been called for is controlled research that includes comparative decision-making conducted in a representative setting that examines contextual factors more systematically. And that leads us to the idea of field studies in the lab. The field study in the lab uh, is a paradigm that reduces demand characteristics of experimental study while simultaneously managing the confounding influences of field studies in the real world. Demand characteristics are what we get when our study participants are aware either fully or partially of what we're trying to get at in our research. Um, one of the benefits of field work is that there are no demand characteristics because you're studying a person in their natural environment. So the more that we can grab that naive experience while still maintaining some control over extraneous factors, the more we can get a clear understanding about how people behave under different scenarios. That leads us to the iShop, which is what I use to conduct this study. The iShop is a virtual supermarket. It is also available in a convenience store format, and we've just finished two studies looking at nutrition claims in a convenience store. Um, the iShop supermarket emulates a 22,000 square foot environment. It's built on the standard uh, racetrack design common in U.S. grocery stores, where the fresh departments produce, meats and fish, dairy, and so forth, are all around the perimeter of the store. The box bagged and canned foods are all in aisles in the middle of the store. Um, the participant moves through the store freely. Uh, they can go forwards, backwards. There's no, uh, there's no plot that they have to follow. They can wander around aimlessly and look at things for as long as they like. Um, they can pick up and rotate products to examine them. They can spin the product around 360 degrees. Um, they can put the products back on the shelf. They make side-by-side -side comparisons. And when they're ready, they select a product and they put it in their cart. Once their cart is full, they make their way to the checkout counter. Um, once they hit the checkout counter, they see a thank you pop-up message um, and then they are released to a post-experience survey. So this, so that's a little background um, on why we did the on why we did the research. I'm going to start talking a little bit now about the actual study and the experimental design. So um, we conducted a two by four experimental design. We had two factors. One factor was the label. Um, we had the hybrid label. Guiding stars is what we call the summary label, and I kind of go back and forth in the slide deck between using the terms guiding star and summary, and I apologize for that. Then we had the nutrition-specific label and the control. As you can see, we had a reasonably well-distributed uh, study in terms of randomization. I'm sorry. The second factor was time. And this gets to that idea about studying contextual factors more systematically. One of the things that I was very interested in is how do people shop when they're under pressure? Because none of us go to the grocery store thinking, I'm going to hang out in the grocery store for a while because this is a really cool place. Most people want to get in and out of the grocery store as quickly as possible, especially parents who have to bring their children along. So. Um, I'm going to talk about the conditions more in, in a minute, 
Um, but our second condition was whether or not the person shopped under time pressure. And so here again are the labeling formats, um, our, in the, our factors in the study, front of pack label with four levels. I just went through these. Um, and, and time pressure, no time limit or a 10 minute limit with frequent reminders. And the way that we created time pressure was when the person walked into the iShop, they viewed a brief tutorial that explained to them how to navigate through the store, how to select products in the shelf. Um, actually, I don't know if you noticed, but a little, a little list pops up in the upper corner of the items that they need to purchase. And as they're going through the store and placing items in the cart, the items get checked off. Um, people in the no time condition saw this information and then they were given a task. Uh, please shop as helpfully as possible for your family. Parents in the time condition were told, please shop as helpfully as your for your family and you will have a maximum of 10 minutes to carry out this task. We then had a prompt that popped up at eight minutes, six and a half minutes, five minutes, three minutes, two minutes, one minute, and at 10 minutes, um, a prompt popped up that said, you've run out of time, make your final selections and get out of here. So that's how we attempted to simulate time pressure in the study. Um, we also had a number of dependent variables. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, our dependent variable was the healthy purchase index, which we created. It was a sum of the nutrition profile model scores for each of the six products. For each product, their uh, NPM score was normalized. This maintains rank order of the product within category. The HPI has a range of zero to 60 with a mean of around 34 and standard deviation of about 12. Um, it turned out to be a really nice normal uh, distribution, yeah, which is terrific and doesn't really happen that much. So it was, it was really nice to see that. We also included the following covariates, uh, participants age, uh, race, and, race ethnicity, uh, sex, household income, level of education, and general health. And I'll talk more about the covariates in just a couple of minutes. Okay, our main hypothesis. So we had two hypotheses about the main effect of front of pack labels, and we had two hypotheses about time pressure. Our first hypothesis about the main effects of front of pack labels was that any front of pack label would produce better HPI scores than no front of pack label. Our second hypothesis was that the simpler formats, uh, guiding stars or the summary and the hybrid would produce healthier ratings than the more complicated nutrition specific label. And this hypothesis comes from the dual processing model, which suggests that people in a shopping situation where they're purchasing items that are familiar or that they purchase frequently are not going to do a lot of elaborated examination of the information. Um, they're going to use very peripheral type of processing where simple information is more easy for them to encode. Um, this is the idea of fluency. How easy is it for you to make a decision in a particular situation? So we believe that the simpler models would provide information that would be more useful in a demand context, and that therefore participants would be able to make healthier choices with simpler labels. The effect of time pressure also follows the same fluency ideas. First, hypothesis three, we hypothesize that time pressure will limit the benefits of front of pack labels among parents exposed to the nutrition specific labels. Again, the idea of fluency. If it takes you time 
to encode this information and you're under pressure, you're less likely to use the full range of information. You may pick up on one nutrient and use that to make your decision, which means you're making a decision under less than perfect information and that you're more likely to make poor choices. For hypothesis four, we assume that time pressure would not affect those who use the simpler formats. The front of pack label with just one to three stars is very easy to read, it's very easy to understand, and it's very easy to make a side-by-side -side comparison. Um, I can't really talk about the law of ANOVA without talking a little bit about the logic of experimental design. Um, ANOVA approach was initially developed for experimental research, and in particular, experimental studies with more than two conditions. So it's really perfect for the study that we did. Um, in an experimental design, the first thing to remember is that all of your participants represent the same underlying population. Um, in other words, our findings should generalize to the wider audience of people that we had in our study. And in our case, all participants were from the US with at least one child, eight to 12 years of age, and they were all at or below 150% of US federal poverty. So we had parents, lower income, US-based. Um, the other thing to remember is that all participants had the same chance of being assigned to any of the conditions. Um, and that means that part, and that means that the background information experiences that people bring with them to the experimental setting are similarly or evenly distributed and not likely to bias the estimates of the intervention. So now we can talk a little bit about the logic of the ANOVA. Um, the ANOVA stands for Analysis of Variance. It is a statistical technique for examining whether observed differences are the result of something systematic, like exposing people to different labels, or just random noise that comes from different people reaching somewhat different decisions. Um, ANOVA is a special case of the general linear model. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the general linear model, it basically says that any outcome can be broken down into an overall mean, a certain amount of error, and any factors that systematically influence that outcome. Um, it relies on independence of observations, meaning that each person in our study is unique and not connected to any other person, and that any person's answer is not reliant, dependent, or associated with anyone else's answer. It also relies on the assumption of homogeneity of variance which means that the amount of error or noise in any one condition is not that different from the amount of error or noise in any other condition because there are no systematic factors influencing that randomness or that variation. And of course, we have to have a dependent variable that is continuous and our HPI score is both continuous and beautifully normal, which is very, very nice. The ANOVA differs from the general model in that the primary independent variable or factor must be categorical. So, the benefits of ANOVA. The first benefit is efficiency. ANOVA produces an omnibus test for the effect of a factor with more than two levels. Typically, when you have more than two levels, you would have to produce a certain number of tests based on the number of factors. So um, if I didn't do an omnibus test to compare all four of my conditions across all possible combinations, I would have to do six tests. And uh, that's very inefficient. Um, the other benefit is that it allows us to examine the effect of more than one uh, independent variable or factor, and those are interaction effects. Um, the ANOVA also controls for experiment-wise error, which is where I was about to go. The error rate is the likelihood that we will reject the null hypothesis and accept the alternative hypothesis, which is what we're trying to prove. 
Um, generally, we don't want that to happen more than 5% of the time, type one error rate, 5%. And so we set up our statistics accordingly. Now, if I had to conduct six tests to compare all of the different combinations of conditions, I would have six times five or 30% type one error rate. I would greatly increase my likelihood of capitalizing on pants. So the omnibus test allows us to control for experiment-wise error by giving us a single test that examines whether or not that effect is significant. And then we can do post hoc tests following to determine which of our conditions are different. Uh, the ANOVA also borrows strength across conditions. So for each of those uh, two condition tests, I would only have around um, 700 people total, 350, 350. Um, for the omnibus test, I'm able to capitalize on the entire sample, 1,450 people, which gives me a more powerful test. So I thought I was going to get back to the covariates in a minute. And when we go from ANOVA to ANCOVA, analysis of covariance, what we're doing is we're adding additional variables to remove some systematic variation from the random or unsystematic component of variance. Um, this is especially true when the additional variables are continuous because you can kind of think of adding more categorical variables as just as an expanded ANOVA, right? So a one-way ANOVA has one independent variable or factor, a two-way ANOVA has two independent variables or factor. You can go on and on and on. But once you include a continuous variable, you no longer can look at that variable the same way that you look at the categorical variables or factors. And so in a very strict interpretation of the language sense, adding a continuous variable is what makes you jump from an ANOVA to an ANCOVA. The other thing is, that in an ANOVA or an ANCOVA model, there are usually just one or two factors that we're primarily interested in. The others are just there to help us control noise or extraneous variation. Okay. So getting into the mechanics of ANOVA, a minute ago I mentioned that ANOVA stands for the analysis of variance and in statistics, Really, everything is about variation. Uh, any test that you run is designed to assess the amount of variation you can explain against the amount of variation that you can't explain. So things that are systematic are explainable. Things that are random are not explainable. Um, what would systematic be? That would be the difference between the results of being exposed to one front of pack label versus another or no front of pack label at all. Um, so that is systematic. The random or unexplained part could result from anything we haven't measured. Uh, because people do come to our experiment with different experiences, knowledge, and attitude, there could be a lot of reasons why people who viewed the same level made different choices. Um, that's not of interest to us and to the extent that we see a lot of that variation it diminishes our ability to identify the important variation that we want to see because of our experimental manipulation. And to some extent, that's where the covariates come in. Um, I, for example, in our study, um, we included age and we included gender because we have reason to believe based on the literature that men and women may make decisions a little differently and also that younger versus older people may make decisions a little bit differently. So, um, are differences we observe occurring because of what we did or by chance? That's the primary question when you're looking at an ANOVA model. The test statistic associated with the ANOVA or the ANCOVA is the F statistic. Um, and the F statistic is just the ratio of the explainable variation 
against the unexplainable variation or the between groups variation against the within group variation. If the systematic variation or the difference between the condition means is a lot bigger than the random variation, it's unlikely that the differences we see occurred because of something that we cannot account for. The bigger the difference, the bigger the F value, the more likely it is that the differences between groups are greater than any differences within groups. And that's true most of the time, but not always. And I'm going to show you that in a minute. Um, so you can think of an F test of exactly one as meaning that there is as much variation within group as between group. Okay. So let's get back to the study for a second. When we tested the main effect of the front of package lens, our omnibus test at three degrees of freedom, because we have four conditions, and the numerator degrees of freedom for your F test is always going to be one less than the number of levels you have in your factor, was very significant. Uh, at the condition means in 95% confidence intervals range from 31.1 for the no front of pack control group to 37.1 for the hybrid model. Now, one thing to think about when you look at this information, I haven't told you which of these are different from which other ones yet. I haven't told you which conditions differed from which other conditions. But looking at the confidence interval, you can start to get a sense of that because where the confidence intervals don't overlap, the means are very likely to be statistically different. And so you can see that we have no overlap among our three FOPL conditions with the confidence interval for our control. Now, at this point, all we know, all we can conclude is that one of these things is different from the other. So our next step is to do post hoc testing. So with post hoc testing, I mentioned we have to do four unique tests to examine all the possible differences among the conditions. Um, now we can't just make these tests Willy-nilly, I mentioned the problem of capitalizing on chance. So we use something called the Tukey-Kramer adjustment, uh, which preserves the nominal type one error rate at 5%, while allowing us to compare all of the pairwise comparisons. You don't have to worry about how to do this test. Tukey-Kramer is built into all of your major statistical packages. Um, there are a number of different methods for controlling experiment-wise error. Uh, some of them are more liberal, some of them are more conservative. Tukey Kramer is an excellent choice because it's sort of in the middle, it's very well recognized, and um, it is the one that I would recommend that you use. Um, so what we see when we look in this data, our first hypothesis was that the no front of pack label condition, I'm sorry, was that both the summary hybrid and nutrient specific labels would produce significantly better results than the no front of pack label. And in the final column here, cells C, E, and F, we see that that is in fact true. Um, the nutrient-specific summary and hybrid labels all produced significantly higher HPI scores. And you know that these numbers are significant because the confidence interval does not include zero. When you're looking at a table like this, I could have put in p-values, but confidence intervals actually carry a lot more information. These tell you about the magnitude of the difference, the possible range 
of this, the mean of six here, or I'm, I'm sorry, I'm using my pointer. I don't know if you can see that. So for the hybrid label, the difference between the no FOPL condition and the hybrid label was six points on our zero to 60 scale. The true difference is somewhere between 3.8 and 8.2. The narrower the confidence interval is, the more precision there is in your data. So this is a reasonably precise estimate. We have the magnitude, and because this confidence interval does not include zero, we know that this is a statistically significant finding. Now, we also can see in the next column back, the nutrient-specific column, that both the hybrid and the summary label are significantly greater than the nutrient-specific label. Again, we have values that don't include zero. Interestingly, in the first column under summary, which is the guiding stars label, we have a very small difference, and the confidence interval does include zero. So the difference between the hybrid and the summary label was not statistically significant. So next we turn our attention to the question of time pressure. Um, before we decided to do our statistical analyses, though, we needed to do a manipulation check. And a manipulation check is a process that you go through when you're trying to induce a condition in the study population and you want to make sure that it really worked. I know for sure that my participants saw certain labels. I don't have any question about that. Whether or not they actually experienced a feeling of time pressure, though, I don't know that for sure. One of the nice things about the iShop is that as a virtual product, as a data product, you get a lot of metadata on the back end. And one of the things we were able to do was time people in the iShop. So we know that people who shopped with time pressure took almost three minutes, a little less than three minutes less than people who shopped without pressure. And that's statistically significant. So that tells me that under time pressure, people shop a lot faster. We also asked people four questions in our post-experience interview. We asked them things like, did you feel rushed in the store? Do you wish you had had more time to finish your shopping task? Uh, there were four items. Each item had a range of one to seven. Um, we summarized an average, and uh, we see that people who shopped with time pressure felt felt pressure a lot more than people who shop without time pressure. Next, we look at the interaction effect. Um, the interaction effect assesses whether or not when we go from one level or one label to the next, there was a systematic effect of pressure. We do this by looking at the time by condition term in the ANOVA model. We test the interaction. It is a three degree of freedom test. And even though that is a very large value for us, it was not statistically significant. And that is because interaction effects are very, very complicated. More complicated than I can go into right now. Um, but the short and long is the interaction effect was not significant across the, the front of pack labels which is okay because we didn't make any prediction about that. We did was we predicted what are called simple main effects. Simple main effects are the effect of one factor at one level of another factor. So we hypothesized that there would be no effect of time pressure within the hybrid label, that there would be no effect of time pressure within the summary label, and that there would be an effect of pressure within the nutrient-specific label. And unfortunately, we got this completely backwards. Um, what this table is showing you are the adjusted means for each of the label types under no pressure and time pressure. For the hybrid and the summary label, people who were not under pressure shopped significantly healthier than people who were under pressure. 
for the nutrient-specific label, almost no difference. And although we did not make uh, uh, an hypothesis on the control group, there was also no difference there. So we just got those completely backwards. And um, to me, that's really interesting because the literature suggests and all the information on information processing suggests that this should not occur. So this is great fodder for the next round of research. You know, why is it that we found that we came to these findings? So um, some discussions and implications. All of our FOPL labels resulted in healthier purchases um, than our no FOPL control. So that hypothesis was confirmed. Um, it means that providing front of information label can be a benefit to shoppers. Um, it also suggests that uh, the United States needs to make some additional considerations about front of pack information. Right now, um, you can find something called facts up front on uh, food packages in the store. They look a lot like the nutri nutrient specific labels without any traffic light information. What our second hypothesis tells us though is that that isn't really as helpful as it could be. Um, the summary and the hybrid labels were much better at helping people make decisions. Um, so we do need more information on fluency. We need to be able to translate this and apply this information um, into the grocery store setting. Um, again, there were no significant differences between the summary label and the hybrid label. I'm not exactly sure why that is, but if I had to guess, it's because people are treating that hybrid label more like a summary label than like a nutrition facts or a nutrition specific label. Um, people probably are not going to the nutrition facts panel to make any kind of comparisons. They're just seeing two stars versus one star or two stars versus three stars and making a very quick peripheral decision. As I mentioned, uh, both our third and our fourth hypotheses were wrong. Um, parents under pressure were less able to apply information from the summary and the hybrid label. Um, my thinking on that is that even though those labels should have been easy to use, the time pressure may have made people just make more mistakes. And with respect to the fourth label, why we didn't see a difference with the nutrient-specific label, I'm not 100% sure about this, but it may be that that nutrient-specific label sort of hit like a cognitive load. It, you know, just looking and trying to work with all of that information was more than people could handle, and then, then you know, cutting their time down didn't make any difference. They were they were capped out before they even got to the time. So we need more information or more research that looks at factors like this and other factors in context. Um, and just a real quick aside, I didn't want to look at time pressure initially. I wanted to look at how kids pester their parents because I think that probably happens a lot more than just straight up time pressure. But uh, John and Chip, my, my programmers, the guys who, who, the guys who built the iShop told me that it would be just logistically impossible to create sort of an avatar for a small child nagging at a parent in a grocery store in a virtual setting. Um, so maybe as the technology increases, we'll find a way to do that. Um, I wanted to say a couple of things just to close out about presenting your information to an audience. Um, I don't know if I've honed to these rules or not, um, but one of the things that I've noticed in my career is that a lot of researchers tend to focus on what they want people to hear and not what their audience needs to hear. Oftentimes we get tangled up in the details of our presentation or our work, and we don't really focus on the important parts that people are going to take away. Um, and with that in mind, you know, keeping it brief, concentrating on the important things in which you want your audience to remember. And always remember that if people are interested in your research, they will follow up with you. And that's what I have for today. So um, I hope you learned a little something about ANOVA. I hope you are learned a little something about the iShop.
and I'd be happy to take any questions. Thank you very much. We have one question. Do you think that the 10-minute time limit was restrictive enough, given that participants who did not shop under a time limit to close to 10 minutes? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Um, we, when we were running the pretests with the iShop, the average time to complete was about was about 12 and a half to 13 minutes, and so we cut that back by about 20 percent um, because we wanted to. We wanted to create time pressure, but we all did not want people to feel like they were running out of time. We wanted people to have sort of like the just enough time to shop experience. Um, if we cut it back anymore, it's hard to say. I see. Thank you so much. I think that your conceptual explanation about ANOVA and benefits of ANOVA was the easiest explanation I ever heard from the, uh, compared to any statistical courses. So I really appreciate that. I have a question too. So you said that when you decide which covariates to add in your ANCOVA, you said that based on the literature, uh, sometimes I have a hard time deciding which covariates to add, uh, not only from the literature, is there any way to decide uh, which covariates to add uh, among many demographic characteristics? Do you have any statistical preliminary analysis to decide that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, looking at the literature is always a good first step. But I have done research where we've had a lot of potential covariates. One of the things that I've done that's been very effective is I will create families of covariates and then run them in preliminary models to see which covariates have are even close to statistically significant. So I might set a like a p-value limit at 0.10 and run, say, person-level covariates, household-level covariates, community-level covariates in separate batches against the dependent variable. And in each of those batches, I will then retain any covariate that is P.01 or below as potentially important. That's very helpful. I have another question. Um, so nowadays, people also shop online as well to do their grocery shopping. Do you think that this could be uh, applicable to having summary or hybrid label could be applicable on online shopping? Yes. Um, well, you know, we don't have any labeling, any for any mandatory front of pack labeling in the U.S. I think that as we go to online shopping, it becomes more important to think about how we're going to present nutrition information to participants. Retailers have the ability to manipulate what products come up first in your queue. So if you've ever done online shopping, um, you may the first time, you know, see a random or some sort of preset order of packages that come up. But as time goes on, retailers become more savvy about showing you things that you've purchased before, or they may become savvy about pushing products that they're getting the digital equivalent of a slotting fee for. Um, don't know if anybody's looked at that yet, but you know, in a grocery store, packages get put at eye level because the retailers are paid to put them there. So we may see things like that in the digital environment as well. I think that makes it more important for us to think about how we're communicating nutrition information online. Um, I also think it's important to remember that at this point in time, even though online shopping is growing in popularity, the vast majority of purchases are still made in person in the real store. Um, so we need to keep our eye on both of these dimensions. Thank you very much. Um, we have another question came in from the audience. Wondering if you can speak about how the variation of FOPLs consumers are seeing in the store may be contributing to the confusion they experience in selecting healthy choices. 
Is it better to have variety of different uh, from package label, hoping that some will resonate better with different shoppers, or would one uniform label system would be straightforward? I personally think one uniform label system would be more straightforward, uh, and that comes with a very big caveat because there have been several controversies already around some of the front of pack labels. Um, there was one front of pack label that was very popular for a while called the new Val. Um, it uses an algorithm to give a food product a score from zero to a hundred. Um, what be, what, what happens when these algorithms are used though is many times unintentionally products that we would identify as unhealthy get healthier rankings than products that we would identify as healthy. Um, and that's because these algorithms work with only a limited set of information. And so you can, you can get into a situation where for reasons that are not intended, you know, a sugary cereal can get a better health rating than, I don't know, something else, something that is actually healthy for, for a child. So uh, we do need one label, but it needs to be a label with a transparent science behind it so that we can continually monitor and evaluate the process of how foods are labeled as healthy. And I, I, Joanne, do you want to do you want to say anything about that at all? Um, people, can people hear me? Um, I think that that's something that's you know, a big policy debate and has been for a while. Um, having different um, logos, and it sounds like you're kind of saying, you know, ones that can be generated by almost anyone, uh, a company, a third party, whatever, is something that, you know, FDA, which regulates labeling, has historically been a little concerned about because, um, you know, people may generate labels that tilt favorably toward their product, like John mentioned, and at times has sought to, the, you know, the government has sought to control that. Interestingly, I think that the organic label that USDA developed is an example of consumers wishing to get away from a bunch of labels from different groups that they knew little about and to have a government um, sanctioned definition and labeled because they saw that as being credible because that wasn't something really that was initiated so much by USDA as initiated by consumer demand. So I think consumers are very distrustful of what they may feel is market speak or presentation and they do seek credibility. But of course it also has to be clear and understandable and science based as John said. Thank you so much. We have uh, a last question we can ask. Uh, great presentation. Would you please share a little bit more about H HPI? How was it validated, items, etc.? Yes. So the HPI, we used um, the UK uh, food standards nutrient profiling model, um, which Debits points for high levels of unhealthy uh, nutrients and gives points for high fiber protein, nuts, and fruits. It's actually fairly complicated, um, and I, I honestly don't have the details beyond that at my fingertips. But each product was given its uh, NPM score, and then what we did was within each food category, we went through a process of standardizing and normalizing so that across the products, we had a reasonably similar range of scores. Because I didn't want, for example, one of our food products, our food products were bread, cereal, granola bars, 
frozen pizza and potato chips. And if I had just gone with the raw scores, the pizza would have just dominated the other five products. So we use this sort of scaling algorithm so that within each of the six products, the scores maintain their rank order, but were relatively similar in their distances from each other. And then we added those together, and that's how we got the zero to 60. Uh, that was the range of the HPI. Thank you very much. Um, in terms of time, we will uh, have more questions by email. If your uh, questions are not answered, please feel free to contact the speakers. Uh, I'll turn it back to Rachel. Thank you very much for excellent presentation. Uh, just a reminder that when I close the webinar, uh, there's a short survey, so we appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future webinars. Um, watch for an email on Wednesday that includes a link to our recording, uh, your CEU certificate, and the handout. And then Journal Club continues, so we will be back online next Monday. Um, we also actually we have an another webinar yet this week. Um, there's a webinar this Wednesday um, that the DINE, the Global Division, has organized. So as always, look at the SNEB website to register for any of those upcoming presentations, and we hope to see you back online soon. Thank you.